Hello, and welcome to another edition of Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Brenda Sandberg, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 16th, 2024. Let's get started today with one of several legal issues to emerge for the pharma industry this week. First up is the legal battle over Medicare price negotiations. Sarah, our colleague Kathy Kelly wrote about how the industry trade association Pharma had its case seeking to strike the system dismissed. Yeah, so, um, you know, Pharma had a little bit of a blow, um, but um, it it was a a case that was dismissed on a bit of a technicality. So Pharma um, filed this lawsuit with some other parties. in particular here, the National Infusion Centers Association that, you know, represent providers that provide infused (laughs) medicines. And um, that was sort of why they were able to file the case in Texas where they did. And the, some of the, a lot of the claims were based um, on, you know, this Medicare Act. And the judge essentially said that, you first have to go the administrative law route um, with claims under this act before you can, you know, file a lawsuit in court. And basically between that determination and the fact that this was the only party essentially based in Texas, the case at this point um, was, you know, thrown out. Obviously, they can appeal, but, you know, the judge didn't weigh in on like the merits of any of the arguments <laughs> that were being made. So, you know, um, it doesn't quite tell us anything on that front. So, yeah, it seems almost like this is sort of like a one-off maybe, you know, I mean, there's like a bunch of these suits that are kind of ongoing here and, you know, so this one might be kind of like the, well, yeah, you should have done the administrative route, but then, you know, there could be, I guess other courts could say, you know, your arguments don't have anything to do with that. And, you know, keep the whole right exactly so a lot of the um drug company lawsuits um which are you know filed where the companies are headquartered um are you know based on more constitutional challenges or different um challenges to different laws um so that's one element of them that's different the other thing um is that kathy talked to some lawyers who were saying that there are some like exceptions to how you know um this administrative remedies process works and some lawyers felt like um, some judges might view this as a case where like since HHS and CMS is like obviously like very committed to implementing this law like um, they're probably not going to provide any administrative relief so like they some some judges might say like in this case there is an exception and you could go straight to the courts so um, you know I don't know if that's something like pharma could um, or this case could push on appeal. But again, it's just um, sort of to go to show you that, you know, it, this doesn't seem like a, what happened here doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to apply to other, you know, cases here in action. Now, certainly there've been like some other, you know, I guess little blows to industries, attempts to challenge um, the law here. You know, the chamber, U.S. Chamber of Commerce couldn't get, you know, like a preliminary injunction to halt the program. And um, that judge also seemed to suggest, you know, that they didn't buy um, some of the arguments that this program is sort of mandatory or that, you know, you have that 
participation in Medicare is voluntary. So, you know, that seems to basically undercut some of the industry's um, constitutional challenges. So, I mean, that case is one more where we've actually gotten a sense of like how a judge actually thinks about sort of more of the core arguments and challenges. But um, and then AstraZeneca had oral arguments um, not that long ago in court on their case. And we might find out probably early March how a judge rules. But, um, you know, right, we shouldn't necessarily take this one sort of dismissal as like a huge sign of how, um, you know, the the court process will go for industry here. It's interesting to uh, think about uh, the various strategies that uh, companies have uh, deployed. Uh, um, you know, I, I feel like this uh, Texas effort was for kind of in some ways uh, what uh, might be labeled venue shopping. That's for kind of they thought that sort of they could get sort of a uh, a more uh, a more favorable judge uh, um, in that uh, um, in that region. And we've certainly seen that with some others for kind of uh, recent healthcare cases. The Mifflin that's sort of moving its way. Uh, up to uh, and will now be at the Supreme Court uh, uh, shortly. So uh, um, uh, it's uh, it's just sort of interesting to me as we're kind of a uh, um, an outside observer that we're kind of there are uh, you know not these sort of kind of kind of these uh, you know submarine lawsuits like we sort of kind of saw with uh, Pristone and uh, uh, the ACA sort of kind of these efforts to kind of, uh, sort of undo uh, uh, federal action uh, with sort of a single lawsuit. You know, there's sort of a uh, you know been been a Broad for kind of uh, kind of a uh, highly uh, um, uh, um, focused uh, effort for a variety of people to do this, and they still sort of haven't gotten uh, gotten off the ground yet. Obviously, sort of kind of the uh, legal gears move slowly, but sort of kind of in terms of sort of a uh, um, you know derailing it before it started uh, um, a legal strategy that hasn't worked out for uh, for industry, despite uh, you know sort of kind of more effort than sort of kind of other other things that have uh, gotten to the Supreme Court. Uh, um, in, in recent years, so it'd be interesting to see sort of, kind of uh, you know, it could pick up steam at some point, but uh, but so far this is uh, um, not sort of kind of worked out as sort of kind of, uh, I guess sort of many sort of hoped or feared, depending on your perspective. I mean, the, the idea of using the administrative grievance procedure, I mean, can that, can that delay the ongoing process? I mean, I, I don't know much about kind of what they're, what they're envisioning. I mean, or would you, would those two things like go in parallel maybe, I guess? I don't know. I don't know how that would work. Well, when Kathy talked to a lawyer in, um, about this and he said that, you know, there's an exception if, if um, the agency would, would, wouldn't, wouldn't review the issue anyway. And that's come up in other litigation, like in the member person case, when they filed citizen petition, then, you know, they said, well, you have to go through the whole citizen petition um, process was, was created so that you would have to go through this before you could file litigation against the company. But in that case, um, they argued that, well, FDA would have ruled against them anyway, even, you know, without going through that process. So it seems like it seems like the judge ruled in and this and it's a very interesting um, point, but it seems like it might they they might prevail on appeal and and, um, you know, other other judges might decide differently. When one thing about that case is I thought actually it would be thrown out on standing grounds because pharma, you know, that like the Chamber of Commerce in the Chamber of Commerce suit that the judge in Ohio said um, that at that point uh, it wasn't clear whether the Chamber of Commerce had standing to pursue a case because they don't have any 
drugs in the in the negotiation process. Yeah, it's an interesting point too, and and, and because I I don't know if it's my jaded self or you know I like to think of wacky scenarios. I mean, it it seems like the a lot of these suits could be either ongoing or kind of like maybe near their conclusion when we actually find out what the negotiated prices are, you know, this first time. So, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, if the prices, if the, if the sponsors are happy with the prices that they got that negotiate that, that were negotiated, would they not be as enthusiastic to have the potentially have the program struck down or, if the reverse happens, you know, if there's like the prices aren't as good as we as people hoped, then, you know, the outcry, you know, there's this big outcry if the courts, you know, try and kill it or something like that. I mean, it's, you know, another interesting, you know, kind of thing to think about, you know, kind of all the outside, all the forces kind of converging, you know, in this whole process. Yeah, I mean, I think that. You know, the first set of drugs to be negotiated are kind of unique in some ways because of how the law was designed. So these are going to be drugs that have been on the market for quite some time. And in many cases, actually, like they have brand to brand competition that's led to big rebates over the years. So it's not entirely clear, like. It, it may not end up in some ways being too bad for the companies as much as they're like crying, you know, as much as they're crying, you know, um, wolf or whatever now. But um, I think even if it turns out, okay, they're still going to push really hard on this on sort of principle of being opposed to, you know, these kinds of government price negotiations, because, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen in the future. The the amount of drugs that are going to be negotiated is going to be expanded over time. Um, Certainly, I think Democrats would like to keep building on this law, make it even more aggressive if they, you know, have enough power. But then the drugs that sort of get picked and chosen as we move along will tend to be drugs, you know, that have had less time on the market than the current set. Um, so it'll be probably more financially impactful. But, you know, it, it, and it, but I think there is a little bit of an irony there. I think when AstraZeneca had their financial their quarter call recently you know they made some comments that kind of seemed to suggest they weren't too concerned after like the initial price um negotiations were made recently from cms for and it, it did come off to me like a little bit ironic like on the one hand they're making some comments that where they don't seem like when they're talking to investors like too concerned about what's to come and on the other hand right they're like making these very aggressive kind of in some yeah, cases kind of, of like doomsday yeah. arguments in court yeah. so um <laughs> you'll it will be interesting to see if any of the judges pay attention to some of that or <laughs> the other side yeah, yeah. uses that yeah that's the classic uh you know uh, um washington versus wall street uh Dichotomy uh, in terms of sort of, kind of what uh, what you hear from uh, companies, I suppose, in any industry that's sort of kind of that uh, you know it's all sort of kind of raw, raw, nothing but growth and uh, blue skies. Uh, you know when they talk to investors, and then sort of kind of it's uh, doom and gloom, and uh, you know the sky is falling uh, when they want to get the, a policy changed in uh, um, in D.C. So uh, you know, AstraZeneca is uh, is not unique, and the pharma industry is not unique in the, um, in that approach. So. Yeah, we'll have to. This will, you know, of course, we, we won't be the only ones watching to see what the, what happens here, but uh, you know, be in, you know, interesting cases to you know, to pay attention to. So thanks, Sarah. Next, we're going to look at drug shortages. 
Brenda, you wrote about the FTC and HHS investigating contracting practices that could be causing shortages. Yeah, FTC expanded its investigation of uh, drug middlemen in teaming up with HHS to issue a request for information from the public on the market and contract terms of group purchasing organizations and drug wholesalers. And the GPOs broker deals between hospitals and other healthcare providers and generic manufacturers for um, the purchase of, of generic drugs. And FDA had launched an investigation of um, pharmacy benefit managers two years ago. And last year, it began an inquiry into two um, GPOs that that work with pharma companies um, with, I'm sorry, work with PBMs. And the focus has been on the contribution of um, of the middlemen, PBMs mostly, to high drug prices. And the new inquiry focused on their role in uh, generic drug shortages. And they asked the public to provide comments on, and data on GP, GOP, um, GPO contracting prices and instances uh, where healthcare providers have been prohibited or disincentivized from purchasing lower cost products. And they also asked for instances when the market power of, of group purchasing organizations or drug wholesalers have contributed to a reduction in the number of suppliers. And interestingly, they they asked a couple of questions that suggested some potential legal challenge in the future. They asked if they were complying with antitrust laws and whether protection under the anti-kickback statute affect contracting practices and drug shortages. And they asked for examples of approaches that would avoid uh, these problems, that would help with drug shortages and keep the price of drugs low, and what changes could be made in contracting practices um, to help keep the supply of drugs in, in, you know, adequate. And um, in response to this request for information, um, the GPOs and, and distributors issued statements defending their role in the supply chain and placing the blame for shortages on manufacturers. The Healthcare Supply Chain Association, which represents healthcare GPOs, said they work with hospitals and healthcare providers to prevent shortages and they adjust their contracts according to market conditions. And the group said FDA had identified manufacturing quality control issues as a primary cause of drug shortages, along with production delays and um, lack of raw materials and decisions to discontinue products. And the Healthcare Distribution Alliance also cited uh, FDA's um, FDA's finding, which came from a a task force on drug shortages uh, analysis several years ago um, that found the majority of um, shortages were due to manufacturing production or quality issues. So this is, you know, an ongoing, it shows a focus of FTC and our primary focus is on drug middlemen and, and it's moved from, expanded from pharmacy benefit managers to uh, group purchasing organizations and um, and drug wholesalers. I was going to say, it sounds like more fingers are being pointed at away from basically everybody at this point. You know, the, yes. the, the sponsors point at the, the wholesalers, right. the wholesalers point at the sponsors, everybody points at FDA. You know, it, it's, 
I mean, at some point, someone's going to point at patients and blame them for this, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that uh, that ad campaign that it's the patient's fault. That'll, that'll get, get, get a lot of traction in, in You're DC. You're taking too yeah. many drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is certainly, uh, you know, this FTC move uh, is certainly a welcome uh, development from the uh, generic industry perspective. They are sort of kind of saying that, uh, you know, their big problems are that uh, their margins are being squeezed uh, far too much because there are uh, – you know, more and more generic manufacturers, but uh, fewer and fewer purchasers. And so it's just a, uh, you know, kind of race to the bottom on uh, price. And they, you know, absolutely insist that this kind of quality is not the problem, that that's sort of kind of why they have to uh, discontinue lines because it's just sort of they can't, uh, you know, make money on the uh, the pills they uh, produce. Uh, you know, we've certainly seen this sort of kind of shortages sort of kind of do often sort of kind of follow, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, GMP problems. However, uh, you know, it's sort of kind of one of these uh, – um, you know, classic rhetorical arguments. Uh, you know, kind of do uh, um, do uh, uh, warning letters for kind of cause uh, drug shortages. Is it the GMP problems, or is it the uh, um, you know the the prices that sort of kind of force the the um, the companies that are going to discontinue uh, if uh, remediation becomes uh, too expensive? So uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of kind of what uh, um, what FTC concludes on this. I think uh, you know, in the absence of some kind of, some kind of uh, macro change to the uh the market you're going to continue to see these uh, um these shortage issues uh, regardless of uh, um whether these uh, um, investigations are ongoing though well, yeah that was my, one of my thoughts was you know do you you can't just say create a couple more wholesalers so there's more competition here for you know for this for these manufacturers to sell to so you know i mean it, I keep wondering if like, you know, if this is one of those problems where, you know, if there was an easy answer or an answer that would come out in something like this, we'd have thought of it already. But yeah, I, you know, I'm just as stumped, I think, as probably everybody else is. <laughs> yeah, I talked to uh, Sanders as uh, Karen Harvoni at the uh, um, uh, Generics Association annual meeting at the beginning of the month. And, you know, she said pretty much the same thing, uh, Derek, that, you know, if there was an easy fix, you know, we would have done it already, but it's going to have a lot of different uh, levers and, uh, you know, uh, your suggestion that you're going to to conjure up, uh, you know, more wholesalers, uh, you know, uh, um, is obviously a good suggestion from uh, the generic industry perspective. If you were kind of a, uh, um, you know, a, uh, um, you know, a, a hospital, perhaps uh, um, uh, you might uh, um like some more choice there too, but we're kind of at some at some point we're kind of that uh, um, those efficiencies we're going to have to uh, end up uh, being uh, being paid for by somebody. So uh, how it uh, how it checks out at the uh, in the market is going to be uh, um, going to be tricky to figure out. Uh, you know, if, uh, the generic industry's argument is like you've you've you know you've let uh, um, you know wholesalers consolidate uh, um, and uh, and you know purchasers consolidate, but you haven't let us consolidate in a uh, in a meaningful way, so it'll be uh, interesting to see if uh, um, you know that uh, um, <laughs> if FTC kind of relaxes their uh, their enforcement on uh, on uh, on generic mergers, whether that's what kind of changes the the market dynamics. Uh, but uh, but that uh, that will probably have to wait for another administration. I would uh, I would I would think. Well, yeah, because I, I was going to say that, that you know this is an FTC that's been far more aggressive in in the pharma industry and other industries and looking at mer in looking at mergers and, and, you know, I mean, they're, they're challenging patents in the orange book, which, you know, none of us can ever remember has ever happened before. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, is this, you know, it, it, it seems kind of funny that the answer might be 
you know, kind of let the market kind of work itself out here. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not really sure that's going to be, I think the concern probably here is, right, the market isn't creating the right incentives because at, at this point it's created this pricing pressure that's just so low and, you know, many of the buyers aren't thinking about, you know, the long-term impacts of that. But we have seen it's like some creative sort of solutions um, like the nonprofit um, Civica, um, you know, I think there's, talk of like figuring out ways to have some like governments for support for manufacturing of some critical products maybe at home so i think there's sort of recognition that there's some sort of market failures here that need to be corrected somehow and i i mean i like i don't think this ftc is going to suggest that the solution here is to let the generic industry consolidate more you know, I think it's it's about figuring out, you know, how to create enough incentives for the generic space to make enough money off the products that they're, you know, incentivized to kind of make enough and keep, you know, the stock at a certain level and keep manuf- and get invest in manufacturing redundancies and so forth. Um, which again is tricky if, if you're, you know, a for-profit business to figure out how to do that. So, you know, I think there's starting to be some creative thoughts about how to kind of supplement and fix those market failures, but it's definitely at the kind of early stages. I mean, Congress is certainly thinking about it. um, And, you know, both sides have had, you know, hearings and there have been some draft legislation released um, recently. but I, I don't think they're very close to actually like coming to the finish line with any legislation. Well, then we just got yes. done talking about drug price negotiations and how, you know, they're trying to bring prices down. So the last thing you want to do is bring generic prices up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the generic industry would argue they're in a different space <laughs> than the branded companies. Right. And that maybe we actually do want to bring the prices up of the, of these particular products and actually there are some um things in the ira that they i think would hope to get carved out of a little bit in terms of like certain inflation penalty and so forth that they say shouldn't really apply to older generic medicines you know when they're raising the prices it may be doing it in a little bit different way or different impact you know than a, a brand product and the price tag there but um I think there's definitely more bipartisan interest in um, figuring out this shortage issue than, you know, there is in, you know, negotiating drug prices in Medicare. Um, It's just going to be a matter of like, how do you get to solutions that, you know, both parties feel comfortable with? Because, you know, obviously Democrats, I think, are more comfortable with government intervention, you know, in the private market. Although I think, again, even like in recent hearings, you've sort of heard, I've heard Republicans sort of kind of recognize that the, you know, the private market is, you know, sort of, there are some market failures here, but there's, then there's like this reluctance to fix, to sort of like creating more, um, particularly federal government bureaucracy to solve it. Yeah, it's a, you know, an interesting problem. Like we said, we don't have, we, you know, not going to be an easy answer and, you know, there's going to be people mad no matter what the answer they come up with is. So, yeah, it's another one of these that we'll have to watch and see if, you know, they can make progress on it uh, going forward. Thanks, Brenda. Finally, we're going to look at marijuana policy. 
Sarah, you wrote an interesting piece on the potential for prescription marijuana products. So what did you find out? So um, this summer, um, after, you know, really like decades of um, insisting that, um, you know, marijuana has sort of no um, medical benefit, the um, HHS submitted a memo to um, um, drug enforcement agency, which makes sort of the final decisions around drug scheduling under the Controlled Substances Act and actually is recommending rescheduling marijuana. So it would be in a category of, you know, a fair, you know, a category of, you know, indicating, you know, of it's highly addictive and so forth, but that, you know, there are potential medical benefits and, you know, this moving it from this category schedule, moving it into schedule three from where it is now in schedule one would basically open the, um, doors for companies to get it approved as a prescription drug in the U.S. Um, And so DEA still has to issue a final decision. There seems to be a lot of, um, the sense I'm getting is that people expect them to concur um, with this, Um, but the um, sort of the FDA and HHS's justification for why they're recommending the rescheduling just was made public recently. Um, and that was pretty interesting and, um, you know, particularly because I think some people would question, you know, what's really changed um, since past, you know, HHS determinations that it didn't have a medical benefit. And, you know, one thing that's really interesting is since the last time they formally weighed in on this is that, you know, we've had this proliferation of um, state laws legalizing marijuana for medical use, in some cases even for recreational use. And at this point, the majority of states allow um, medical marijuana to some degree. Now, of course, like technically (laughs) under federal law, (laughs) that's not allowed, but there's basically been like a lot of enforcement discretion um, from the federal government and they sort of allowed this to proliferate. And it it seems like that state experience was really key to getting FDA comfortable enough with the fact that, you know, this product may have potential medical use. And, you know, they're very clear and, you know, laying out like the evidence base for the the indications where they see the most like potential medical use, um, which is like pain, um, anorexia, nausea and vomiting. They're very clear that they didn't find like NDA level evidence, right, (laughs) of um, um, available yet for marijuana. You know, they're not going to like, they're not putting a rubber stamp on anything. They're basically saying, um, they see the potential there. And so, um, that's a pretty big deal. The flip side of this is that it seems like unlikely that the federal government could sort of like put the cat back in the bag and start like trying to close down these state, you know, marijuana marketplaces even if, you know, we change the schedule for medical, for marijuana, and there is some kind of prescription product approved. So the question is, like, as a, you know, a health consumer, do people want to pay or get the a prescription marijuana product, you know, that's sort of FDA regulated versus what they might be able to get at a different price point or with maybe even a different ease of access at their, you know, more state overseen dispensary dispensary. And that's, I think, going to will be an interesting question. And some people I talk to think, you know, this isn't going to be, you know, that attractive of a market. Um, And other people think, you know, there's a population of people that will 
feel much more comfortable if you know you have an FDA approved product and comes with sort of the quality assurances that that entails and you know you can get it more formally prescribed by your doctor you can you know get health insurance coverage um and so forth so that that'll be interesting to see because you know I think people have kind of described what's happening at the states as kind of like a wild west you know you don't necessarily um, some states have better programs than others for sort of regulating and making sure people actually like know what they're getting, right? Like you can grow marijuana in all different kinds of ways, or are you actually getting marijuana when you think you're getting marijuana? What are the THC levels in it? And that was a big thing that came up in the the, um, the memo to DEA, which is like the amount of THC in marijuana has um, seems to be rising a lot um, recently. And, you know, THC is sort of the addictive, you know, the most concerning component and kind of why it's been a schedule one substance. So um, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if this schedule change goes through, can it, do any companies kind of bring forth a product to FDA and what does that look like? How do people take it? What, what indications do they, you know, seek to get it approved for and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it, you you just brought up in my mind the you know how would you if you're the FDA and you do an NDA on pot, at, you know, and you can guarantee manufacturing from the sponsor, but how how do you? I mean, you know, it, it, what what happens if the patient says, oh, well, I'll just go down to the dispensary and get that pot for because it's whether it's easier to get or it's cheaper or whatever, like you said, and you know, whatever the THC level isn't what it's supposed to be or something. And then, you know, all of a sudden you have all these issues popping up for whatever approved label it is. And, you know, can you, you know, we'll, we'll places start advertising based on the labeled indication and, and all that kind of stuff, even though they're not, uh, you know, the actual sponsor of the, the approved product and so forth. Yeah, it's it. This seems like it creates a whole lot more problems than maybe it solves. You know, I guess it depends how the federal government decides to deal with it, right? Um, you know, if if the federal government decides that okay, you know, okay, we're um, changing the schedule of marijuana. It's no longer Schedule One substance you know, people can try and get prescription products approved. And thus we are going, we're going to stop our policy of taking enforcement discretion against the states. I mean, how the federal government would do that, that could create a lot of challenges for FDA, you know, for other parts of the federal government to actually try and have to enforce that and go after it. And it might just, you know, probably would take a lot of energy and could be like a losing, kind of a losing battle at this point is how people described it. You know, maybe like you could think about like what happened during uh, prohibition or something <laughs> in the U.S., right? Like, is there really a way to sort of like crack down on this and control it? But um, it, it, I think people I talked to sort of envision there still there being like a way for both that sort of more informal, less regulated <laughs> marijuana market to exist. And then for a prescription market to exist, that would, again, be attractive to people who really want the assurances of a product that's gone through the FDA process, both for like the clinical trial process of sort of actually proving it works for what you're taking it for. And and then, um, you know, again, 
the regulation of the manufacturing and the quality of the product and the assurance that what you're getting is really what you're supposed to be getting. And then, you know, again, I, I you know, it's hard to know, like, I don't know what people are paying when they go to their state dispensaries for medical marijuana. But, you know, if you have insurance coverage, maybe that's a big um, plus as well. And, you know, the example um, someone gave me was like Epidiolex. Um, which is, you know, a CBD substance, which is a little bit, uh, you know, which, you know, comes from marijuana and that they've been able to make um, significant amounts of money off that product, even though like there are lots of like much less regulated, right, CBD based products out there in the U.S. that you can get without a prescription and for less money. And, you know, I think Epidiolex is an interesting case, right? Because you're talking in many cases about children and, you know, I can imagine as a parent feeling much more comfortable, you know, with um, if you have a kid with a, you know, a, a disease like epilepsy, feeling much more comfortable with an FDA, you know, approved and studied product. So I think there's, there's probably a way for both of these um, markets to coexist. Um, it's just a matter of like, f whether companies are think think about whether they'll make their like return on investment of actually doing all the work to go through the FDA process. Yeah, I think that you've uh, hit the nail on the head there with that one, uh, Sarah, that's for kind of, uh, you know, if you think about it for kind of, uh, you know, defining the, uh, you know, the the production process of sort of kind of this, uh, you know, botanical uh, um, product and then sort of kind of uh, societal uh, complications of sort of kind of, uh, you know, moving a, uh, an illicit drug into uh, you know the the illicit channels of uh, you know insurance and uh, prescribing and all that sort of stuff uh, you know who uh, that you know that takes a lot of uh, um, uh, capital a lot of money and uh, you know because it's so fraught you know is it is it a uh, is it a smart play for sort of kind of a, a big experienced uh, um, pharma to do? And, uh, you know, if not, and uh, they don't seem to be sort of kind of particularly interested at that point, at this point uh, in this stuff, sort of kind of, you're going to be left with uh, less experienced, uh, less resourced uh, players who are sort of kind of taking, taking a moonshot on this. Sort of kind of, will, will it work out? Can I sort of kind of uh, carve this uh, niche in this uh, sort of kind of a totally new way? And uh, I think that, uh, you know, you know, could uh, could make it harder because they're just sort of kind of not going to be as uh, as skilled at navigating these uh, regulatory waters as uh, um, as someone who uh, who's not interested in the hassle uh, would be. Right, and I guess um, you know, Matt, you hit on a key point, which is if you're thinking about really trying to get like a full marijuana plant, <laughs> FDA approved, um, you know, you're talking about going through this botanical drugs pathway, which is. Um, different than when you're dealing with kind of like a single chemical entity, you know, or even um, product. Um, it's a pretty unique pathway. I think somebody maybe told me only about like five products or something like that have gone through it, right? Wow. And in some ways, you think about it more like a biologic and like you really are characterizing your product and how you make it and what's in it more than in the way, you know, a traditional drug pool. So it's quite different. And it's, um, you know, I, I'm told it's quite challenging i mean it's certainly doable but it's it's a unique pathway to operate under it and it also comes with different um considerations right you cannot patent a, nat a natural product in the us now you can get like you know like what's known as trade secret protections which some people told me like can be more valuable like you can think of it like the recipe for Coca-Cola, right, is like a trade secret brand, you know, Coca-Cola. <laughs> um and something like that like never expires. So there's sort of some long-term, again, um, protections, but it's different. And, you know, the other thing to think about is like, 
the rescheduling should also, you know, open up markets for potential FDA products for like just for THC products. So, you know, the other maybe way you could think about going a more traditional drug approval process would be like, you know, creating products, you know, with THC derived from marijuana. Although um, looking right now at like kind of what's in the pipeline, there's not a ton of stuff there. Um, certainly perhaps a scheduling change would increase that. Um, but there's also been some synthetic THC products actually on the market for quite some time. Um, you know, they had to get their own like scheduling um, changes before they could, you know, start. But, and those products don't actually have, you know, the biggest uptake. And then, um, you know, scientists say the, the issue there may be that, you know, the benefits people maybe getting from marijuana may not be just due to, you know, there's like, I think hundreds, maybe even more cannabinoids in marijuana. So it's like the interaction of all of those substances in the product may be creating that. So it may be hard to sort of like just pull THC or pull certain cannabinoids out and create a more traditional drug product. Yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff, Sarah. You know, again, it's like think things you don't think about and you know, but are on the kind of the may, may potentially the cusp of, you know, being on kind of front of mind of of the, you know, the industry here. So thank you very much. That's all for today. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and other podcasts on the Sightline channel in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify Podcasts, as well as on smart speakers if they have been set up as your default podcast provider. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Gingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, and Nielsen Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time.